Bible reading today is from Acts 1, verse 1 to 11. You can find it in the bulletin. You can also find it, obviously, in the Bible or on your Bible app. I'll give you a few moments to find that. That is Acts 1, verse 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bryce, for uh, leading us in prayer and for reading for us as well. Very quickly, two things I didn't mention earlier but should have. One is tomorrow night community dinner, St. James Anglican Church from uh, with the folk that we do serve. It's fun. The other thing is, is uh, you remember our little guy T was with us again uh, under negative circumstances. Some of you have been asking what's up with that. He, he went home again on Thursday, which was great. Uh, and so he's back with mom and dad, and uh, we continue to pray for him. So there you go. Uh, you can see that uh, based on the cover of your bulletin and on the back page of your bulletin, I suppose, that we are into a new ser- series that we're starting uh, this morning, Mission Impossible. Dun, dun. Oh, how does that go? Dun, 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 dun. It's such a great series of of movies, the Mission Impossible movies, and so I'm totally ripping them off. It is a fact, an historical, demonstrable historical fact that 2,000 years ago, a very small group of slaves and servants and peasants and the occasional wealthy woman, although not very many of them, came to believe that this man, Jesus Christ, was the pre-existing Son of God, who was God before he entered into time, but then he did enter into time through what's called the incarnation, which we remember at Christmas. And he lived on this earth and died on the cross, and then three days later rose again from the dead and then ascended into heaven. And they believed these things about this person, Jesus, and they were a small band of people who had no power. They had no political power, they had no educational power, they had no economic power or cultural 
power at all. But within about two centuries, this small group of extremely uninfluential, and you've got to remember that, extremely uninfluential people grew so that in two centuries, their beliefs swept across the Roman Empire and became a leading force in that society. You see, by the third century, the emperor of Rome had to admit that in, a, in an empire that was falling apart in a lot of ways, this small group of people who became known as Christians and then had exploded into this massive group of people throughout the empire were basically keeping this empire together. And this religion that was born out of this small group of extremely uninfluential people ended up changing the trajectory of history so that today, you and I, whether we believe it or not, we are actually beneficiaries of the culture that they gave birth to. Our views uh, in Western culture on justice, on things like liberty, on human rights and where they come from, they're all rooted in the belief system known as Christianity. And the question you got to ask yourself is, how in the world did that happen? How did that happen? How did virtually overnight this new religion get born? You know, I was actually talking about this a little bit in a, in a different context with someone before the church service, but uh, sociologists in the last... 30 years or so, have done a lot of study on how beliefs are formed in people. And what they've come to discover is that beliefs are typically formed very, very early in people's minds, much earlier than initially we thought. We used to think that they were kind of formed in early adulthood, and now we've come to discover that they're actually formed uh, in, in uh, pre-double-digit years of our development, many of our beliefs are formed extremely early, and it is very, very, very hard to change people's beliefs, like super hard. When, when a certain culture believes certain things uh, without questioning them, they become something that's known as a truism. A truism is a basically a belief that everybody holds to. Uh, they, they haven't really thought through why they believe it or anything, but they believe it. Uh, and nobody really questions it. And when through generation after generation, cultures have these different truisms, these different beliefs that are very, very deeply embedded, it is nearly impossible. When it comes to Christianity over the last 2,000 year, years, tons and tons and tons of people have had their entire worldview, their belief system, completely turned inside out. Listen to these statistics, okay? In the year 100 AD, there was about one Christian for every 360 people who believed other things. By the year 1500 AD, there was one for every 27 people. In the year 70 AD, there was one Christian for every 6.5 or so people on the planet. How on earth did that happen? Well, the book of Acts explains a little bit for us how on earth that happened. 
because it is a, re a record of the earliest days of the church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study the book of Acts. We're going to spend this spring studying like chapter 1 through 8, and then maybe next year we'll pick it up again and, and do another section, or maybe in the fall. I don't know. We'll see how it all goes. But anyhow, we're going to start with chapters 1 through 8, and we're going to see a little bit uh, the reasons behind why the Christian faith spread like wildfire through Western culture, through the Roman Empire, and through Western culture. And, and today, we're going to look at, at the lessons that we can learn from that as well. So this morning, oh, now it's the afternoon. Got to start saying afternoon. This afternoon, we're going to look at three things very briefly together. We're going to look at the event, an event that happened, a command that happened, and a promise that was given during the earliest days of the church and the establishment of the church. You can find that on the back of your bulletin. And it's all here in Acts chapter 1. So first of all, an event. How did this faith grow? Well, it grew because of a particular event. In verse 1 and 2, it says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, a little bit of background here. The author to the book of Acts is a guy by the name of Luke. Luke was a physician. Luke was a doctor. Luke was a scientist, okay? And he wrote this two-part, actually, epic story to a guy by the name of Theophilus. The first part of his story is, if you go back to, to Luke, and I know some of you can't because you don't have your Bibles with you, but um, if you go back to the Gospel of Luke, in, the, in chapter 1, it says this in verses 1 through 4. Listen carefully. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Theophilus was some Greek-speaking, possibly very well-educated. He was sophisticated. He read literature. He read history. And he was a prominent figure in the culture of the time. And Luke says that he wrote this two-part story, Luke and Acts, for the purpose of making the case to him that Christianity is absolutely true and trustworthy. So he says in verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Well, what are the things that he had been taught? Well, Luke is making the case to Theophilus that Christianity is true because of one particular event, and that event is the resurrection. In verse 3 of the passage, Acts chapter 1, it says, he presented himself alive to them, talking about his followers, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke's argument is this. Jesus rose from the dead. It was an absolutely demonstrable historical fact of history. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, right? When we talked about it uh, during Easter Sunday. Today, we, would, we, we naturally want to say that, well, people back then, they were... They were 
able to believe in the resurrection because they didn't have sort of all the scientific knowledge about how life and death works that we have. They don't have modern medicine to explain it to them and all that kind of stuff. And, and what we saw last week is, is that the worldviews of the first century Jew and the first century G, Greek Greek <laughs> were, were just as unable to accept the notion of a body coming back from the dead in the middle of history as we are. They were just as incredulous as we are. And that's why, after the resurrection, if you read through the Gospels, read Matthew, not Mark so much, but read Matthew, a little bit of Mark, and certainly Luke and John, you will see recorded in each of them that Jesus had to appear over and over and over again to his followers. So he appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears to his disciples in this upper room. He does these things over and over again. And nowhere in any of those stories is it recorded that somebody said, hey, you said you were going to do this, and here you are. How awesome is that? You did it. I'm so happy for you, Jesus. No, everybody is freaking out. Who is he? How did he do that? Is that really Jesus? I'm not sure, etc. He shows up in an upper room and he says to his disciples who have known him for three plus years, he says to them, peace be with you. Why? They're freaking out. Don't be afraid. And so he says, give me a piece of fish. And he eats this piece of fish in front of them. And he says, can a ghost do that? He countered his disciples at a worldview level, and he shattered that worldview. And it took a very long time. It took 40 days of him appearing to them and teaching them and appearing to them again and teaching them again over and over and over again in order to convince them. You see, people say that, well, the disciples, you know, they were hallucinating because they really loved Jesus and they really wanted him to come back. And so they were hallucinating that he, that he came back. Honestly, all of them, really, all these disciples were hallucinating. I've been a pastor for almost 20 years. I have talked to a lot of people who have lost loved ones, many, many, many of them, who have lost people that they have loved very, very deeply. And I, I hate to tell you this, but almost nobody hallucinates that their loved one is still around. They don't. People know when someone's dead and gone. And so Pascal, Blaise Pascal, who's a brilliant scientist in the 17th century and a, a theologian, he said, you know what? He said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. And what he meant by that was this. The one of the arguments is, is that the disciples, you know, they, they had this plan to overthrow the Roman Empire, and with a dead Jesus, they couldn't accomplish the plan, so what they did was they took the body and they made it look like he rose from the dead so that they could continue their re revolutionary uh, project. But the problem with that is, is that it is common. Yeah, so, okay, here's the problem with it. Almost every one of them was martyred for this belief. Almost every disciple died horribly for this belief. John died on uh, the island of Patmos as a, as a prisoner. And the rest of them died horrible horrific deaths. You've heard about how Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire, so I don't need to go into it. Now, people will say, well, yeah, but people die for falsehoods all the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we've seen that with suicide bombers and all that kind of stuff. People do die for things that aren't true all the time. But very, very, like, when do people die for stuff they know 
isn't true. If all these disciples knew it was a complete hoax, why would every single one of them go to their death, even under torture, saying it is absolutely true that Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven? It just does not make sense. The point is, is that they saw him. They were convinced that he was real. It was true. He completely shattered their worldviews. See, Christianity is not a high-minded philosophically true. If you can prove it's historically false, it is false. And the whole thing falls apart. What a gutsy religion. Buddhism doesn't depend on that. Hinduism doesn't depend on that. Islam doesn't depend on that. Christianity depends on that. It is earthy, if I can put it that way. It is historical. It is dependent upon real, actual historical events. Now, quick application before we move on to point two. For two people, first of all, skeptics in the room. Those of you who are skeptical, I want to... And take the time to, to figure it out. And here's what I want to ask you to do. Don't, don't, don't give up. It takes a long time to change our beliefs. And that is hard for us as modern people to accept because we live in the age of quick. We want answers quickly. We want to be convinced immediately. We want instant satisfaction. That's the kind of culture we move in. We're an Instagram she says it takes a really, really long, long time to change our beliefs, and you're being told that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which is a really, really hard thing to believe. It's going to take a long time, possibly, to convince you. Not necessarily, but possibly. And I'm asking you, don't give up. Just because you leave today and you go, hmm, interesting food for thought, but I don't know. Please come back. In fact, this summer... We're going to class that will meet from in July once a week for seven weeks on huh? Tuesday nights from 6.30 to 8 p.m. You'll get a free meal. You watch a video. You discuss with people just like yourself, people who are skeptical, people who are seeking, and you are free to ask any question you want. But what's great about it is, is the answers you're going to get are going to come from Jesus himself because you're going to study the book of Mark. With Mark. Uh, consider that. Don't give up. Second of all, quick application. For those of you who are Christians here who love a skeptic, there are people in your life who aren't believers and you are feeling like you're dying over this. They... They won't budge. You've prayed and prayed and prayed, and they, you're going to ask them to come to Christianity Explored, and they're going to go, and you're going to feel stupid for asking in the first place. You ask them to come to church, and they go, yeah, right. And you feel stupid. And you're losing patience. And you're, you're frustrated. Look, the apostles, think about this. The apostles themselves were with Jesus on a daily basis for three years straight. How's that for an intensive Bible study? And they didn't get it till the end. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep at it. And don't freak out. I'm talking to myself more than anybody else right now. Don't freak out, Paul. Don't freak out, Grace Valley, because it's true. If it's true, 
Why are we freaking out? If it's true and it's going to come, it'll come. It'll come. Okay, moving on to number two. It spread not just because of the event, it spread because of the command. Verse three, once again, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering for many, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus, for this 40 days, he didn't just like show up in rooms and go, ha, 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 hi, and then like disappear again. He had, he spent time with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the fact that they ask a question is not strange. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. So of course, they're going to ask him about the kingdom of God. The problem is, there's a lot of things wrong with the question. They've, they're showing that they don't get it. Because they say, are you going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel at this time? So they thought this kingdom of God that Jesus had been teaching them about was territorial and political. They thought, you know, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They're looking back on the days of David and Solomon. These are the glory days of Israel when they were players on the world stage and people took them seriously and there was peace in the land and they were very uh, economically prosperous and, and, and people were worshiping the true God. They thought those were the good old days. Um, they thought that it was a national, an ethnic kingdom because he, they said, are you going to restore it to Israel as though it was their kingdom and their kingdom only? They thought that it was going to be immediate. They said, at this time, are you going to restore it at this time? They just do not understand the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Very, very quickly. In the Bible, the kingdom of God is not a realm. It's not a geographical place like, you know, the kingdom of Monaco or the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's not like that. The kingdom of God, one of the ways you can define it is, it's a system of leadership. In other words, the kingdom of God is a universe living under God's rule, under the rule of Jesus Christ, following his value system, following his will, desiring the things that he desires for the world. That's the kingdom of God. And what you've got to understand is, is that this is a world where people standing here with a knife to Ashley's throat, as she said, I submit myself willingly to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I say he is Lord, I am not. He says do this, I say okay. He says jump, I say how high. Maybe Ashley doesn't want to jump, but you understand what I'm saying? It's willing, because some of you may be sitting here and you're going, oh yeah, you're talking theocracy like Islamic State. Oh no, 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 no. It's not forced. Everywhere, you know where the kingdom is manifested? It's manifested in people and places where people have been personally and individually transformed by the king. Where they have gone from saying, I'm in charge of my life. I make the decisions. I will go where I want to go. I will do what I want to do with who I want to, with, with, you know that song, right? You gotta go where you want to go. Do what you want to do. Okay, look it up on Apple Music or Spotify. It's a song that exists, okay? You know it. Thanks, Tom. That's, you go from that personally and individually to saying, I want to go where Christ wants me to go. I want to be who Christ wants me to be. I will, I will go with who Christ wants me to go with, willingly, individually, not coercively. You're transformed into living a life for yourself 
to living a life for what the kingdom of God looks like. And in verse 8, Jesus responds to their dumb question about the kingdom of God by saying this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is his commission, this is his command, this is his mandate. He says, you, disciples, and anyone who believes in me will be a witness to me. In other words, they will have the same mission as Jesus because in verse 1, Luke says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what he says in Luke. In other words, Jesus' life, death, resurrection was the beginning of it, right? A witness testifies. A witness says, I know this is true. What I have seen, what I have heard, what I have experienced, Ashley's testimony was exactly that. This is true. This isn't just my truth. I know this to be true, and I am sharing it with you. This is more than just evangelism as well. Because he's, they're told to be witnesses. Their entire lives are meant to witness to the truth of what they've experienced. In other words, how they behave and how they, how they live their personal life at home and how they raise their children and decisions that they make about where they're going to live and, and, and the kind of house they're going to have and how much money they're going to spend on themselves and how, what they're going to do with the rest of it for the glory of the king. The, all these decisions are made from that perspective. And not only that, it gets even bigger. You're going to think about politics. You're going to think about economics. You're going to think about social justice, you're going to think about geopolitical, environmental issues, all through the lens of what the king has taught you. And that's not always easy to do. I'm not saying it's easy. But it's comprehensive, you see. Now, let me quickly apply this before we move to number three. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to know why you're here. See, if you're a Christian, you wake up every day and you know exactly why you're here. You're not here to make widgets. You're not here to build your economic empire or your personal portfolio or find the hottest woman to marry or raise the coolest kids or win the sporting event of the day. Those are all great things to do, and they may be part of what you're doing with your life, but you know you're here to experience all that he has to offer you through his son, the joy, the peace, the, the all. Do you know how many people get up every day going, what am I doing here? I get up and I put, get in my car, and I'm on the highway with the rest of the drones to Toronto or whatever, and I put in my hours, and I... I put in my data or I make my project and I get my paycheck and I come home and I watch some Netflix or I, you know, I, I play on a sports team or whatever. Is that what this is about? Is this how I ended up here? I ended up existing just to do that stuff? Is that really what it's all about? And a lot of people, they actually don't dare ask that question. They refuse to ask that question because they know, they know 
that ultimately they really don't have a purpose, but you have to pretend to have a purpose because if you don't think you have a purpose, it leads you to depression, it leads you to despair. Any of you who has been unemployed for a significant period of time, you know at least a little bit what I'm talking about. You get up every day and you're like, should I even get dressed? Who am I here for? And that's just one aspect of your life, and it leads to depression. You know how many people who are unemployed end up with, with depression? And so those of you who are employed say, oh, thank God I'm employed. But you know what? You're just putting it off because you're going to retire eventually or be replaced by the Borg. How many people retire and they say, what now? What am I here for now? Or how many parents raise their kids and then the last one leaves and they become what's called an empty nester and they wake up in the morning and they go, What's my purpose? I just spent the last 20, 25 years of my life raising my children and now I have no clue what to do with myself. See, the apostles knew why they were here. They got up every day with a purpose to bear witness, to spread the joy. And that's, that's the, I'm telling you, man, if you're a Christian, I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but to be able to wake up and go, I, I, I have a reason to be here is such a Third thing, power, power, power. This spread because of power. Um, you guys got to realize, I've got to realize, uh, think about this, okay? Let's just take one, one of the apostles. Let's take Thomas, okay? Thomas, good Galilean boy. Had a bit of a hard time believing that Jesus really rose from the dead, so much so that he had to see him right before him physically, so Jesus did that for him. And here he is listening to Jesus before his ascension and he hears Jesus say, okay, you're going to be my witnesses. Thomas goes, okay, I'm going to be a witness. I can handle that. You're going to be my witness in Jerusalem. And, and, and Thomas goes, okay, I can do that. I mean, it's a bit risky because, you know, the Jewish leaders, they're not very crazy about Jesus rising from the dead. So we're going to feel opposition and I might even end up in prison, but I'll do it. I'll do it, Jesus. And then Jesus says, and you're going to be my witnesses into Samaria as well. And Thomas goes, ugh. Those half-breed heretics? Uh, I don't want to go there. Okay. Well, maybe. Maybe I'll go. And then he hears Jesus say, and to the ends of the earth. And Thomas goes, what? He's never been more than 100 kilometers from his house. The ends of the world? What a huge mission. And church history actually tells us that Thomas, church tradition says that Thomas brought the gospel to India and he died in the city of Madras. You know, Madras is 4,800 kilometers away from Jerusalem. That's like going to the moon. Ridiculously huge. And it's incredibly demanding even for us today in our culture because our culture is becoming increasingly hostile. You know, it's, I, I was listening to a Christians, people, the culture said Christians are, you know, they're the, the super uptight moral people. You know, they're kind of holier than thou. They say no to all the fun things that the rest of us want to do. And we, secular people, we say yes, we're free, liberated from all their silly rules and morality and stuff so that we can really swing. That's how it used to be. Today, more and more of the secular culture actually views Christianity as immoral because of 
Christian, Christians' views on sexuality, Christians' views on gender and gender roles and gender identity, Christians' views on life and the end, beginning of life and the end of life. The secular culture doesn't say to, to Christians anymore, oh, you guys are just so uptight and moral. The, the secular culture now looks at Christians and says, you are immoral. Your views are wrong and harmful and dangerous. Our culture is more like the early church's culture than any culture that the Christian church has been part of since. Because the earliest pagans believed that the Christians were immoral too. How in the world did it spread in that culture? Because I can tell you right now, you and I are sitting here going, I sure don't see it spreading in our culture. And you're, now you're telling me our culture is like their culture, but it spread like wildfire in their culture, but not in our culture. Why? What's going on? Power. Power. Supernatural power. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And this is the key, okay? Now, you remember last week when Jesus visited Mary appeared to Mary. Mary clung to him, right? My Lord grabbed onto him and wouldn't let him go. And Jesus had to say to him, don't cling to me, Mary. I'm going to ascend. Don't hold on to me, Mary. If you do let me ascend, if you let go of me and let me ascend, Mary, you'll never, ever, ever lose me again. Because that's what she was afraid of, right? I lost you once on the cross. I ain't losing you again. I ain't letting go of you again. And Jesus says, look, if I stay, Mary, then I have to be in one spot at one time, and you will never be taken me from again, be, or taken from me again, because my Holy Spirit will not just rest upon you. My Holy Spirit will be in you. My presence won't be just beside you like I am right now. My presence will actually be in you. And so if they chain you up, they put you in the deepest, darkest dungeon and lock the bars. I will be closer to you than I've ever been because of my spirit, Mary. And when I ascend, my power will be released explosively in the world. That happened on Pentecost. That's what we're going to look at next week. Now that happened, and any believer has that power within them. And what now you're like, what is that? How does that power work? For a long time, I did not understand this. I grew up in the church. I did not understand how the Holy Spirit worked at all. I just, I heard about power. I thought of Pentecost, flames coming down, people talking in languages. I pictured the disciples being able to like shoot fireballs out of their hands and stuff when I was a little kid. I didn't get it. I thought they were like Avengers, right? Uh, but but I grew up and I did a bit of reading and I've, I've learned a lot from very brilliant teachers and, and here's what I've come to understand. The Holy Spirit's main job, this is what the Holy Spirit does for, for believers is he applies salvation to them. In other words, what he does is he makes the death, resurrection, or sorry, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus real to us, beautiful to us. The Holy Spirit says, look, it is hard for you to die to yourself. It is hard for you to engage in this mission. It is hard for you to believe that Jesus actually lived, died, rose again. The light onto Jesus and make him so glorious and beautiful and attractive to you that you cannot help but fall deeply in love with him. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. Now, when he does that in you, he creates 
humble boldness. And this is the last thing. He creates humble boldness because you're humble because you realize you have no reason to brag, no right to look down on others, no, to th- no right to think that you're better than anybody else because you see that he has died on the cross for you, but you also have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Death can't touch you. Enemies can't destroy you. If this life is the pits, it can't bury you because you know where you're going, with whom you will be. And so you're like Teflon Don, except in a good way. The gospel just doesn't, it doesn't just lead to power or bring power or result in power. You see, the gospel is power. As you meditate on, as you hear me proclaim, as you read in the Bible, as you share with each other the gospel and remind one another who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that power sinks deep into you. You know the early Christians, okay? Listen. The early Christians, when epidemics hit the city, you know, plagues and stuff like that, people dying all over the place, you know what people did? You know, because medicine was not very advanced, you know what they did to deal with it? They ran like rats from a sinking ship. People left the cities, just emptied them out. Let everybody die, wait a little while, come back, huck the bodies out of the city, burn them maybe, and carry on. That's how you dealt with these kinds of things. The Christians come along, all these people are dying, everybody's fleeing, and the Christians are running into the city. And they're caring for the people who are dying. When the Christians were being persecuted... And, and attacked for their faith. They didn't turn to terrorism or guerrilla warfare or anything like that. They, were, they, were, they prayed for their persecutors while they were dying. And when the Roman Empire was at peace and people from all kinds of different that ever happened was they clashed and clashed and clashed the church. And in a culture that denigrated marriage and denigrated women, frankly, the church gave value to both the institution of marriage and to women. The culture had never seen anything like it. Why? Why? Because this truth was a power. All right. In conclusion, an event, a command, a promise. That promise stands today as much as it did two centuries ago. We got a big task here in Dundas. We're in a very affluent community, very successful, well-educated people, many of whom are like, Christianity, that is so passe. And it may feel like the advances are so small. When you feel that way, remember the power of the Holy Spirit is at work. Sometimes it takes a long time to convince people of the truth. But there is a promise. He will not leave you alone in that work. He is with you and with me. And so we we have nothing to fear.